Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the proposed global minimum tax with AAF's Gordon Gray. Gordon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. How have you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, hanging in. Yeah. It's it's nice that we uh, get to see each other in the office again. So it feels like we're getting closer to that return to normalcy we all have been craving the last year. Yeah. Um, uh, humid, hot uh, walks to the office. Yes. Are, are, um, I'm getting very nostalgic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's jump into today's topic. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced that the G7 countries reached an agreement to back the creation of a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. Uh, But there's a lot of confusion around this tax proposal. So let's start with the basics. What exactly is the global minimum tax? So this whole uh, enterprise stemmed from uh, an effort uh, that began about six years ago with the OECD. Essentially, that's a um, supranational sort of a global forum for kind of the world's most developed economies. Uh, And they embarked on what was called the Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project, or BEPS uh, project, that looked at the tax considerations of globalization, digitalization, and kind of all these features of the modern economy and the degree to which they have changed the tax landscape. Animating a lot of this was basically a concern that major companies uh, are able to shift their uh, taxable income around the world to avoid paying tax. And uh, this generated, this whole effort generated 15 separate action items to be addressed. Action item number one was essentially looking at the digital, the challenges of the digitalization of the economy and essentially how to tax that. That effort sort of kicked around uh, for a while. The whole effort ginned up some uh, real policy changes, in fact, some that uh, have already been incorporated uh, in the United States. But then sort of the effort lost a little bit of steam. Then uh, a couple of years ago, basically the uh, global economies kind of looked around and said, hey, we should get back, get back to this effort. And they kind of restarted action item one, which is this idea of addressing digitalization in the economy. And that generated two policy initiatives, so-called Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. They are separate, distinct, and yet uh, highly correlated and, 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 and related. And in fact, that essentially you have these two pillars that are related to the same concept means that they're getting conflated in the news and by, and by analysts. And, and that's understandable because in some parts, they are related to the same overall negotiation on this, but there are some distinct policy considerations to assess. And so when we talk about the minimum tax, that's pillar two. Pillar yeah. one of, of this enterprise, this initiative, is essentially how to and where digital, largely digital companies, though, in, in scope, this, this tax policy will, will affect just global companies, frankly. Uh, just essentially where they are supposed to be taxed or which countries can can have taxing rights over the digital footprint of large companies. And since the United States is home to so many of these large multinational companies, it looks looks an awful lot like 
basically the rest of the world um, has their hands in the U.S.'s pocket. And since that's a key aspect of tension in so-called Pillar 1, the thinking is that negotiations with respect to Pillar 2, the minimum tax, will give the U.S. some leverage over Pillar 1. Pillar 2, again, is the minimum tax, which you just brought up, and that is essentially in a in a world where major companies are operating all over the world, where sovereign nations have very different tax systems. The theory is that uh, major companies are moving their their income artificially to, you know, stashing their income in tax havens, moving patents all around and, and basically paying very little tax. That's the theory. Scoping the size of this problem is a little bit more nuanced. There's quite a range of estimates as to just how big this problem is. And uh, nevertheless, a group of countries have decided that uh, the solution to this problem, again, the the magnitude of which is as yet uncertain, is a minimum tax Mm -hmm. of 15%. That's where the consensus is among the G7 that Secretary Yellen uh, recently um, uh, addressed thinking is essentially the the, uh, momentum is among the G7 is towards an agreement on a 15% global minimum tax, which is to say companies are expected to have to pay no less than 15% on global profits. Where the rubber meets the road, though, is one, is getting other countries to agree to this, and two, is agreeing to a definition of what exactly the income that can be taxed is. So unfortunately, I know that's a little bit of a long-winded answer. Part of this is because it's so darn complicated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so let's unpack some of this throughout this. I mean, how exactly does this tax work? I mean, who and what would it apply to? Right. So again, we're talking about uh, so-called pillar two. Right. Uh, Essentially, the, the theory here is that major multinationals are able to move operations all over the world to, to avoid paying tax. This has been viewed as a significant problem by certain policymakers and, and uh, tax authorities. Again, the degree to which this is a real problem necessitating sort of a global solution is frankly, in my view, in dispute. Uh, there's been some work on this and, and it's not clear that this is that this this global push for minimum tax isn't exactly a, a policy in search of a problem. So setting that aside, The thinking here is that to the extent that companies are paying effective taxes on their overseas operations at less than a certain rate, then jurisdictions can then essentially top up the tax. So if you have a, say, a U.S. subsidiary paying taxes on its operations overseas at 10 percent, then the theory is that someone, either the U.S. or another jurisdiction, can essentially top up that tax. This is all predicated on the notion that we can all agree to a common global understanding of what income is. Mm. Now, every country has tax policies that define what taxable income is. That's a function of their sovereign taxing authority. The United States has taxable income, France's taxable income, and they're all animated by political decisions in those respective countries. So, um, you know, France has patent boxes. UK has patent boxes. The United States has has expensing. These all change the rel- the corporate tax base in each country. This pillar two asserts that taxable income on a global basis that there should be a global agreement on what taxable income is based on financial accounting statements. Financial accounting statements 
are often, uh, not in often, miles away from taxable income for reasons that are specific to those jurisdictions. So things that are in income that is included in financial statements is often not included in taxable income because those countries have decided that they shouldn't be. So things like research and development, um, things like that. And so this whole notion of a global tax is predicated on the notion that we can, one, agree to a tax base and then apply some globally agreed upon tax rate to that tax base. We're a long way from that. Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's the why behind this? Why are the G7 countries looking to impose you know, the global minimum tax? What is the goal of in- implementing this tax? The stated goal is to reduce base erosion. So that's this so-called erosion of a country's tax base through tax planning. So that's essentially when a company can shift its income for tax purposes out of a country's uh, taxing authority and kind of move it to a low tax jurisdiction. So that is the problem that this policy is designed to uh, address one challenge. Again, the magnitude of that challenge uh, or that problem is, is again, somewhat in dispute. Second is the, at least the rhetoric or rhetoric around this is to end the race to the bottom for corporate taxation. Um, this is predicated on, on the, the observation that major world economies have over time reduced their reliance on corporate tax receipts to fund their governments. That's not really the case. Countries have, on the whole, on average, reduced their statutory uh, corporate tax rates, but they've also done some other things that increase corporate tax in some way so that globally, the corporate tax revenues have been uh, relatively stable. So it's it's just simply not the case that there's been collectively this race to the bottom. There has been a decline on average in in tax rates. But as we sort of went over before, taxation is more than just the rate. It's also the base. In fact, often the tax base is more tricky to determine and trickier, I should say, <laughs> to determine and to, to negotiate than the tax rate. But the tax rate is easily understood. The tax base is a little more complicated. Right, so right. frankly, this is uh, I, I think that that is that argument is more rhetorical than than substantive. So basically, when it comes to that whole race to the bottom on corporate tax rates line of argument, it's not really necessary in your view. No. Moreover, to the extent that a country decides to reallocate its revenue sources, I don't understand the idea that you would point to one tax and say this is a good tax, but to the extent a sovereign nation has decided to fund their their governments in another way. It's a, almost a value judgment on the, the wisdom of corporate taxes when there's an OECD l- literature and there's an, an economics literature in general on how corporate tax uh, taxes are, are poorly designed taxes. There's mm-hmm. um, other ways to tax income to fund your governments that's more efficient. So I frankly think that this is a, a uh, poorly targeted policy. Right. So how we got here, I mean, you were talking earlier about the OECD pillars that are standards that they were talking about for several years now. Is the G7 agreement similar to basically what that organization has been talking about? Yeah. So um, this is this is a great question, because I think it's important that we kind of take a step back and sort of unpack the process and the institutions at, at work. Kind of the lead organization for this is the OECD. And it, it is typically just Major developed economies, many of which are, are in Europe, it's in fact OECD's or is uh, headquartered in, in Paris. But obviously, there are other 
supranational bodies of which the G7 is, uh, you know, representative, you know, sort of the, the world's great economies. Uh, then the G20, which is a more expansive group, but uh, sort of a, the, the broadest forum for negotiating this is what is called the Inclusive Framework. And that is 139 countries, variously over time, there have been more or less um, that have been part of this. But right now, it's 139. It's been 137. It's been less than that over time. But have all agreed to participate in in uh, the formulation of policies to address what was BEPS action item one and, and is now kind of devolving down into pillars one and two. That is the broadest group um, working towards this. It is steered by the OECD. And clearly, though, within that, you have other processes and bodies. Most conspicuously, most recently, is the G7. So those are the most, the largest economies uh, within the inclusive framework. And then you'll have G20 meetings in about a month. That is a much more diverse set of economies than the G7. Whether or not they are tasked, or the, the expectation is that they will arrive at some degree of consensus on pillars one and two at their next meeting. It is unclear, though, what the degree of consensus will be on any of these. Uh, and then the the expectation is that, or the, the asserted timeline is that they'll actually wrap all this up uh, later this year. I'm somewhat uh, skeptical uh, of that myself, because um, there's a lot that, that remains unclear, and there's a lot of policy on which there is not agreement. Right. Yeah, I'm sure that we'll be watching as, as the G20 comes up and have to see all those countries that might not be as supportive of this than the, the as the G7. But let's turn to talk about the impact of this tax and what yeah. it, you know, what it would be, uh, the winners and losers, if you will. First, what's the impact on businesses and the economies of these countries? Yeah, so we don't yet know what exactly the final product will look like, if there is a final product. But we can speculate on what some of the key parameters may be uh, on pillars one and two. These have been moving targets to the, like I said, to the extent right, you know, right now we, the G7 has agreed in concept to some parameters that have been laid out in some of the, uh, the supporting documents. But they haven't sort of said, here's what we've all agreed to. Here's what we're going to put before the G20. And then we'll move on to the inclusive framework and get everybody's buy-in. We're nowhere near that. Essentially, there's been policy documents related to pillars one and two that have been observed as the foundation for consensus. That doesn't mean that they are the, the policies themselves. So the final product will reflect what has been put out so far, but it's unclear the, de the degree to which there's been agreement on any specific of mechanisms or determinations within, within those, those policy documents. That's it. At a high level, we can expect or consider possibility that you will have, with respect to Pillar 2, again, the minimum tax, a tax regime that looks somewhat like what the United States has already imposed in what is called the guilty tax. So essentially, a tax that is nominally designed to tax tech income, sort of highly profitable income from patents. So the, the cliched example is, you know, these big tech companies pay no taxes because really it's just a patent sitting in a filing cabinet in the Cayman Islands earning all this money. And, you know, the reality is that over time, tax regimes have evolved to capture some of that income. And in fact, the United States in the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act imposed essentially the world's 
first major global minimum tax. And there hasn't really been much of a retrospective look within the this OECD process to say, well, did any of this stuff work? Like, is this still a problem? Um, and there hasn't been an agreement that the guilty tax would be compliant with pillar two. Hmm. Um, and in fact, the Biden administration is suggesting changes to the guilty tax that would actually move it further away from some of the, the potential policies that would be included in the OECD pillar pillar two proposal. So the outlook for major U.S. multinationals is is within this, at least within this this lane, is not particularly great because you have a, a U.S. a U.S. government that is actively pushing to tax their foreign operations more highly within a a global policy forum for um, taxing largely U.S. multinationals more than they already are. So you have kind of two interests that are aligned towards taxing major successful U.S. global corporations to a higher degree. My own view is what that will involve is probably uh, we will probably see uh, greater foreign acquisitions of U.S. subsidiaries and then possibly less investment by U.S. firms. On the whole, I, I think among all the companies uh, affected, you know, the U.S. Is, is home to some of the world's most successful global multinationals. I think they'll probably be expected to bear, you know, a, a disproportionate share of the, the taxation here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, tech companies in your example because they're facing the digital service tax. It seems like more in favor of this. Uh, what do you make of this? Yeah, so this is um, th this is where some of this gets even more complicated because <laughs> that's those digital service taxes are actually related to pillar one. So separate and apart from the minimum tax, you have this whole separate argument that also gets awfully complicated <laughs> on basically who and where can tax digital companies. And that's somewhat of, of an oversimplification because it's not just, quote, digital companies. In fact, one of the key findings that uh, early on in the OECD's work is essentially you can't really ring fence the digital economy. Right. I mean, what is the digital economy? Mm -hmm. the, in fact, the OECD is part of this. They said you can't ring fence and sort of really identify the digital economy. And then they created these these lists for basically saying, well, if you meet this, you know, any one of these characteristics, then you're then you're a digital company. If you don't, then you don't. It's it's kind of silly. It's kind of that old. Uh, I know it when I see it based on right. you know, these list of characteristics. It's kind of ridiculous. But that's pill under pillar one. The, the debate is basically how much and where and who can tax income that is earned in a certain market where a company doesn't have a physical presence. The traditional tax rules basically require a company to have a physical presence or nexus to be taxed. But, you know, in a modern economy, that's not the case. It's, you know, our the global economy isn't just a, one of, you know, sort of physical factories in places. Now it's, you know, users or any number of other uh, metrics for identifying sort of market participation. Pillar one is basically saying, all right, we're going to, um, for these companies, we are going to depart from international tax norms and basically let people start taxing these companies in a way that has never been permitted before. The reason why some U.S. tech companies are saying, sure, we'll go along with that is because along the way, a lot of individual company, countries have started saying, yeah, we're just going to tax you. Yeah, we're going to tax you. And that's where these digital service taxes are. That is, essentially, in many cases, it amounts to double taxation. 
They're just basically creating these taxes that have, you know, look awfully discriminatory. And they look like just kind of a revenue grab of, of U.S. companies. The goal from the U.S.'s perspective in Pillar 1 is to get rid of those and agree on a sort of global consent to a global consensus on on a rules-based approach to taxing these countries in lieu of unilateral um, di digital service taxes and then retaliatory tariffs in a trade war. Now, if those are your two options, you're going to go with a, a rules-based approach, you know, through you know global consensus with dispute mechanisms and all that, as opposed to a trade war. Mm -hmm. Between those two choices, yeah, you can understand the incentive there. But where where things start getting complicated is. Where's the U.S. interest? You know, are we going to, you know, how much are we going to give up on the minimum tax debate to get what we want out of the out of the pillar one debate? And there's a real concern that that the current administration is perfectly willing to sort of you know, give up the store um, because they don't have a particular interest in not taxing U.S. firms overseas. It's a progressive administration as a matter of tax policy that's never been a particularly high on progressives um, tax priorities. So the real concern is, you know, who's looking out for U.S. interests and to what degree? Yeah. So so what comes next year? I mean, Congress, the G20, you know, we've mentioned this a bit. How might this proposal actually be implemented? So, you know, I, I have been skeptical on the outcome of this, and um, it's easy to bet against global consensus. That said, there are a lot of interested parties who would like a piece of basically the U.S. tax base. The current U.S. administration is in strictly opposed to, to that. And so the G7 agreement gives momentum to a political process, which is within a political process. We're getting to kind of that where the rubber meets the road. So when you broaden the discussion now to now to countries that, you know, the G7 are have some degree of alignment on this as it is. In fact, none of them have corporate tax rates below 15%. As you broaden the scope of this agreement, you're going to start getting countries that have tax systems that would have to be changed, presumably to, to the disadvantage of their own, of their own uh, companies. Separately, you have other, you know, you have other countries that are not typically part of the OECD or otherwise that are part of the inclusive framework. Like China, China is saying, yeah, I don't think so. You know, they have massive subsidies and research and everything. And, you know, it's unclear the degree to which they'll be accommodated. They'll be, their interests will, will be reflected in this agreement. Now, if a global tax regime is, is pursued by other countries that will require some congressional input and China is not a part of it, I find that an awfully high barrier. <laughs> for yeah. uh, consensus, at least in the United States. So, you know, there's momentum behind this. There's, you know, some intermediate steps along the way that will be very challenging. Yeah, seems like there's still a long way to go, a lot of hurdles to overcome. But thanks for unpacking the impact of this, unpacking what the agreement was for us. Because like I said at the top of this, there's been a lot of confusion around all this. Confusion will continue to reign. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, Gordon. Sure thing. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. 
I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.